Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to Better Words. Michelle, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing wonderful. And (laughs) we have, I'm quite excited to talk about this book for our book club today. Yes. So we are talking about The Burning by Laura Bates, which Mm. was a suggestion of mine I'd been wanting to read for ages and I needed an excuse. But having both of us having like followed Laura Bates's work before and you've got everyday sexism and, you know, we're sort of fans of her work, I thought it would be a really good pick for us. So it's so good. I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I have been meaning to read her other books for ages, but yeah, it just, they just kind of slip by some of those, don't they? You get caught up reading other releases and things and... I really want to read um, The Men Who Hate Women, which is her new nonfiction, Um, but I just what puts me off reading it is just know it's going to make me really angry and it's going to be really gross and I just oh I've got to yeah but I know it will be amazing because she's an amazing researcher and I really admire her work um so yeah I should read it but yeah I just I need to like prepare myself for it you do kind of need to prepare because it will make you angry and I didn't fully prepare when I started reading this, I just kind of started it. So I was like, oh, we have to do this for the book club. Michelle and I have picked it. I have to read it. And then I was getting into it and I was like. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, like it made me so angry. angry. Um, so let's sort of tell people about it. So it's young adult fiction, but all the things that happen in it are things that have been reported to Laura um, she says in the author's note at the end, like these are all things that happen. Do really happen to Yeah, people. to girls in real life. Yeah, to girls in real life all over the world. It's just thinking so, I have my copy in front of me. It's not yes. the biggest blurb or anything, but I'll just read it to uh-huh. give us a bit of a an idea. So The Burning by Laura Bates. New school, tick. New town, tick. New surname tick social media profiles erased there's nothing to trace anna back to her old life nothing to link her to the incident at least that's what she thinks until the whispers start up again and that's it so it's not really like a very big on the back okay yeah yeah Yeah. um so do you want to give a little bit more context then shall we expand on that a little bit without we don't we're not going to give spoilers but also as we've said with so many of the books that we've discussed this time it's important to know what is being discussed because especially right now which we're going to get into a bit later I think it's important to know because it could be quite triggering. So basic plot Anna as it says so Anna changes her name she starts going by her mum's maiden name when she and her mum move from somewhere in the UK I forget. Birmingham. Okay, to a small town in Scotland and she goes to like the nearby high school in a slightly bigger town and she is the new girl in school, small school, so obviously very noticeable. It's also like the semester before the end of year 12 or something. It's like one of those things where it's like this is a weird time of year to change schools and a weird time in your education to change schools. So she does draw a bit of attention there. And the parallel sort of storyline to Anna's incident is that she and everyone else in her class has a local history project research assignment to do. So in that, she starts learning a bit more about this small village that she has moved to, and in particular digs up a story of a young woman who was was she burned at the stake I've already forgotten I think so I think she was burned at the stake for being a witch after 
she had a child out of wedlock with quite a powerful man in the village in 1650-something, way back when. It's sort of implied that that is maybe through rape or coercion as well. So it's not necessarily her fault, but when she tells the powerful people in the town that, they say, you're they lying, don't believe you're her. a whore, you're a yeah. harlot. They side with the man and then when the man dies in a, in some kind of sailing accident a short time a after the... Yeah, because yeah, it's a fishing village so it's quite, you know, it's happened to lots of different people but because people have already said that she's, you know, a whore, yeah. then she's primed yeah and then this man dies they go oh my god we you had his child and now he's you whore you had his child and now you've killed him you witch um so that's kind of the parallel story to Anna's is that she's investigating this for her history project and kind of you know bringing the themes of oh we've been calling women witches and not believing them and doing things to them forever. Yeah. And that wonderful quote of where the granddaughters of the women that you couldn't burn. And then she sort of says, she sort of takes that and is like, we're the granddaughters of the women you did burn and we've had enough. We're not taking it anymore. Um, So yeah, that's the sort of theme of the theme of the book. Yeah, it is. And the modern day sort of aspect of this story that Anna has run away from and then follows her is that she is the victim of revenge porn and some horrible boys at her old school were circulating and like reposting and editing and photoshopping. Doing deep fakes, yeah. Yeah, deep fakes of, yeah, photos and videos of her and so she, you know, she and her mother escaped. They moved to Scotland. No one was supposed to know where they'd gone. And it follows her and a fake, like fake social media profiles, like add all of her new classmates and it just all happens again. And it just snowballs. Um, and then because of that, obviously, she's very isolated, but mm. she's in this horrible position. I felt so sad for her because she doesn't want to tell her mum because they've already like her mum's trying so hard to make this new life work. So her yeah. dad exactly. has it's also already recently passed once. away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they've so tried to like move. And they moved. They're trying to move on and they're trying to make the new life work and they're trying to make new friends and all the shit just happens again and she's like, I can't tell my mum because, like, what do we do? We can't, like, leave again. I have to make it work for her. It's all so horrible and, you know, everyone that's doing this to Anna in the book and anyone that's done this to anyone in real life are horrible. Mm-hmm. But one thing I kept having to, like, sort of think and remind myself, Michelle, I don't know if you had the same thing, is that I was reading it and I was getting so frustrated. Not, I mean, for the most part, I could understand why Anna didn't want to tell her mother and felt like she couldn't talk to teachers and things like that. But I was getting really, really frustrated with the other teachers that knew and the, like, the very new friendships that she had made that these other girls turned on her and her other classmates turned on her. And I was getting really frustrated with them and with the with the actions and their language with like slut shaming and victim blaming and all these things. And I was like, "Ah!" and then I was thinking about it and I was like, but Caitlin, what did you do when you were 16 and things like this Mm. were happening when you were in high school? Because I'm sure I didn't help in a lot of situations. 100%. I think that, I think that we forget how, how much that peer pressure of like wanting to fit in and there's like a there's a there's a brilliant moment where one girl does like silently do something and then she literally says to her like I'm sorry I can't can't be seen seen with you because she's had uh, I'm sorry that I can't be seen with you I'm sorry this is happening to you but I'm not gonna let it happen to me by letting everyone know that because she's already had 
she's already had rumors about her being yeah. spread and she's just starting to get her life back on track. So she's like, I'm sorry, I know how it feels, but I can't let this like derail my progress basically. Yeah. Um, so I do think like as much as I was, I was more angry at the situation because I think when you drill down to an individual level, a lot of those people were doing that to be part of that group mentality which is why the um, parallel historical storyline is so interesting because it brings up a lot of that like people in the community maybe wanted to stop or uh, maybe wanted to speak out against the witchcraft allegations but they themselves were worried about being tarnished or you know hurt in the same way so it's easier to go along with the mob mentality than it is to speak out against it and I think that's obviously something that we still see played out so so often it's scary really yeah um which we should discuss the context in which we are reading this as well so this book came out in 2019 I just checked before we started recording yes and I actually telling someone else about this book that I enjoyed reading even though it made me angry and I had misremembered or had kind of attached in my head because I think there's a date there must be a date mentioned somewhere in the book 2017 yeah yeah that's 2016 or 2017 so I was thinking all day today thinking about our discussion that this book is about five years old and it's not not it's not but it doesn't matter because it doesn't have to be because it no. still goes on. Um, still relevant, also, 100%. 2019 doesn't feel like that long ago because 2020 feels like a little black hole. But um, I think what – I turned on the TV as I was finishing this book today because, yes, I hadn't quite finished before we started recording. And right now in the UK there are tens of thousands of um, reports – of sexual abuse um, committed by students against students in schools in the UK that have been ignored and are only just becoming public. So I'm going to include a link to the website, um, which started, I think, as an Instagram page or a Facebook page or something where people could share their stories and it's just absolutely exploded and they're now talking about it on the news and it is you know, allegations where people have said, you know, this boy in my class raped me and the school are like, okay, they don't do anything about it. And then the girl has to sit in the same class with her alleged rapist and things like that. So obviously we're talking about like, um, maybe you can give us the Australian context as well, since you're probably a bit more across that, but we talk about these things all the time. Um, and I think I, th- I just think it's really poignant that this is happening today about schools when this is a YA book set in a school where the school essentially does nothing and at one point threatens to expel Anna for her actions in taking the photos, yeah, not the people who are distributing trouble. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it's just really poignant that this comes out today about schools and about the inaction of schools in the UK when this book is set in the UK by a British author. Um, I just think it's really poignant. But it also makes me incredibly angry because this book, apart from being published two years ago, obviously would have been written well before that. This comes from experiences reported to Laura of girls in school. It just makes me so sad to think that so many girls have had this same experience. And I say girls because we're talking about teenagers. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about really young girls. Girls, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, obviously it happens in the workplace. It happens to older women. But I think just to focus on the fact that we're talking about schools at the moment and this is coming out in the news, as I was finishing this book, I was like, this is – you know, I'm going to have to talk about this and I'll, I will share a link to some of the stories because it's just absolutely shocking. Um, and it's inaction on the school's part, both from like private schools and state schools as well, who have done nothing because they don't want to damage their reputation as a school, which we've seen happen in Australia as well. But I think just the level of this is like, it's not just one school. It's not just one student. Yeah. It is tens of thousands of students reporting everything from slut shaming comments to rape, 
that have yeah. been ignored. Um, so yeah, just, oh my God, this book made me so angry. And so, but I also oh, yeah. felt so powerless, like in Anna's perspective of everything, being a teenager, feeling like you couldn't tell your mom. And like, of course, you might read it as an adult and think, well, just tell your mum. But when you're reading the book, I think um, Laura Bates does a brilliant job of putting you in that mindset of really, I was like, oh my God, yeah, she can't tell her mum. Like it just, just yeah, so. Me too. Oh. I, for, yeah, for a lot of it, I really understood like why Anna felt she couldn't talk to her mum, couldn't talk to teachers you know, et cetera, et cetera. I did, was finding that my main frustration was with the other girls and her friends. And I was like, just believe her. Why would she be doing this to herself? Oh, again, when you're in that moment as well, yeah, this is a new girl you've known for a few months versus the friends who you've known for years. Yeah, exactly. They don't, I it's think that, natural. yeah, I know. And I think that that's actually a really interesting element. Say if the burning did take place say the first time this was all happening to Anna and it was her lifelong friends on her side to begin with and then fading away as she says is what happened when it happened the first time I think it's really interesting that she it's even more isolating because it's just it's instant the second the first photo goes up and the first few comments are made on this fake on these fake social media profiles about her new friends they're like oh slut we don't pay attention to her now like we're not friends oh wait you're forgetting though that the the reason why two of them are so angry with her is because there is a very 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 personal secret that's shared which also ruins i just wasn't like giving it away as part of the story i don't i don't i don't (laughs) want to give it away and i'm not going to say what it was but someone else's life is implicated in that and I think it's the rage of how dare you share my secret I literally only told two people who could it possibly be of course you would choose the new person to isolate as opposed to a friend who you trust so deeply like you would never think that they could do that and spoiler alert they didn't like it is more of a mystery than that you know it's it's which I was so glad that it actually wasn't that person because I was like oh my god I would be devastated if it turned out the lifelong friend actually did it like that actually just had done it. I know oh, I was thinking so that at first I was like did she do that and um so I was just yeah because obviously I mean, as the reader we're with Anna's perspective and we know that yeah. she didn't do it so yeah exactly. I know it's horrible like how how I was starting how to think that- like things are bugged I was like oh my god they've like hacked her phone it was I was trying I to know. work out how it had happened um but I mean, the truth, of course, is never as exciting as bugged phones and all that sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, I think it was just, oh, it was just so, I felt powerless to be, and and like, I've never, ever, ever experienced any of this stuff in real life. And to feel that way, I can't even imagine how horrible it feels to have that happening to you at the time and I just feel horrible for anything that I maybe thought as a teenager or said as a teenager with the crowd yeah I've never read or watched or listened to anything else you know describing these sorts of similar experiences that has like this is the one that really made me go and like I had flashbacks to like high school and going oh my god I did call that person a slut to my friends behind her back you know like I I did think like oh my god well kind of had it coming all these things before I knew better and yeah you know and I don't I don't think like I feel ashamed saying that but then also like we have to remember that that's the world that we've been brought up in as well and I think this is this is indicative of the bigger problem that we're facing yeah exactly it's what we're trying to change now is that mentality yeah but I think it's the only other thing that has made me feel this like physically unsettled and upset is asking for it by Louise O'Neill that I think asking for it more so because the main character is incredibly unlikable and 
that really plays with your mind because you don't agree with things that she does and you don't. <laughs> so, so it's like the next level of imagine Caitlin, you were reading this and you really didn't like Anna and you didn't think that she did the right thing in certain situations. Yeah. Like at least with this, Anna is someone who you immediately warm to, I think, and you immediately feel this like you want to protect her as an older reader um but I think that the asking for it was like the next step forward of challenging those views on um you know rape culture and slut shaming when maybe the person was already quite promiscuous or quite like I don't know it's it's hard to but that book is the only other thing that's come close and I would say if you have read either the burning I would read asking for it and and vice versa. Like it's both of those are really powerful. Like it's just such a, it does make you think about all the other situations where maybe we've said or done things like, yeah, it just, I'm glad that we're, you know, we've changed and that we're learning and stuff, but yeah, it is, it makes me so sad how ingrained it is in our culture that, for a lot of us, we didn't even question it when we were at school. Isn't it funny how sometimes you go, God, teen girls are so mean. And then you're like, yeah, but I was one of them once. Like, Ugh. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we can all grow and change, which is good. Um, do you want to give a tiny bit of context for me and other UK listeners of what's happening in Australia, which makes this book quite a powerful read at the moment? Oh, God, I'm not very good at specifics for this you don't have to have specifics just give us the gist just the gist please (laughs) well um yeah just lots of cover-ups of people literally being raped within parliament house might be a good place to start yeah um yeah there's a lot of there's been a lot of different things recently where people have reported both like semi-recent and historical cases of politicians assaulting, raping uh, people. You know, one case like literally in Parliament House where security guards saw them and she still wasn't believed Mm. and is, and as things have come out in them, I think the thing that really has struck me from that particular case is as, you know, things are being reported and other politicians are commenting on it and police are, you know, saying things like that, there are details of, you know, the night in question that the victim was learning with the rest of the world as the media was being reported on it, which I just think is horrible. Like she Mm. didn't know what had happened. Yeah, I believe she had, you know, blacked out at certain points and so didn't know that, you know, she was walked past security guards or something like that and people saw them and then, ugh, it's just horrible. But that's just one. Uh, Yeah, so it's it's pretty, like, There's unfortunately, there's too many stories like this all over the world all the time, but unfortunately there's a few that are quite prominent um, cases and media stories at the moment that people are. I think what we see too is that like with the Me Too movement and stuff like that, like we can be shouting about these things for so long, but sometimes the the time is right for people to finally listen and for people to start to take action. So like with this um, this, uh, school website, um, mm-hmm. a space to report these things it's like that that obviously people have individually reported things but when you have a space to for everybody to report that sort of stuff people start to take it more seriously because they can see yeah. it's not just one or two people it was like I mean that's what happened as well with in Australia at least and child sexual abuse in churches and other institutions yeah unfortunately um, that is a trend with a lot of this isn't it even when it's yeah. Even when it's like, you know, like the big um, powerful celebrities and things like that, there's, I think mm. I'm sure I heard a quote or something at some point that's like, until it's three people, no one believes them. Yeah. If it 
it's if there's yeah. three people saying the same thing then you know you start to look into it but because no one believes you if it's just one person yeah it's really oh it's so disgusting disgusting. but this and this book just made me so like fired up but also I did feel powerless because I was like what the hell do you do to stop this stuff being shared online people were making all these fake accounts and it does I guess bring a different light to it of how do you stop this avalanche of stuff happening online when it's put up there without your consent and you know in the book she tries to report things to Facebook but as soon as things are taken down more come up and it's just like this endless or they don't get taken down at all um so yeah I think overall what would you say about the burning I mean it was a really really good read I flew through it so quickly because I was just like, I had to find out what happens. I was so angry. I just wanted to keep reading so that we could eventually get to the end of the book where I hoped there would be some kind of resolution. Yeah, I agree. It was so powerful and I think just really caught my heart in a different way because I just wanted to protect Anna and stop everything from happening. And yeah, like you, I just needed to keep reading and find out what had happened um but it also made me angry and then I turned on the tv this morning and all this stuff's coming out and I was like oh my god this literally does nothing's changed nothing's changed so we need to change it now so yeah that is The Burning by Laura Bates we'll we will leave it there if you've read it please please get in touch we'd love to have a chat about it and if you haven't please 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 pick it up it's amazing it is it's amazing and Now I have to go reread Everyday Sexism and the rest of Laura Bates' work. So our guest today is a writer, illustrator, editor and lawyer. She is the author of over 20 books and has been nominated for multiple awards. She's also the co-founder of the Voices from the Intersection initiative that supports emerging young adult and children's authors and illustrators who are First Nations, people of colour, LGBTIQA+, or living with a disability. And she's the co-editor of Meet Me at the Intersection, a groundbreaking anthology of young adult own voice memoir, poetry, and fiction. We're delighted today to be discussing her latest novel for younger readers, Tiger Daughter. Welcome to Better Words, Rebecca Lim. Thanks so much, Michelle and Caitlin. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Um, We would love to start with hearing about your brand new middle grade novel, Tiger Daughter. Can you tell us a bit about the story and that novel? Sure. Um, It's for middle readers and it was kind of inspired um, by a moment of quiet fury at um, one of my daughter's parent-teacher English interviews. And um, she goes to the school that I used to go to about three decades ago. And um, they said, you know, here's a tailored book list for your daughter. And at the top of that tailored book list were three, you know, Australian classics from at least 70 years ago that I read as a kid as well. And so while I was listening to the teacher who was saying, you know, it's really valuable that she reads the books on this list, I actually thought if if you can't do better than this list after three decades, your mum's going to bloody write a story for you to read. So that's kind of, um, that's the origin story for the novel, but, um, Yes, it deals I love with- that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Super, super mum. I've got to step in there and do something. But um, yeah, yeah I think the, the, the goal for this book was a really small one. It was like, I'm going to get this published and then I'm going to hand it to the head librarian at the school, which I've managed to do. So, you know, my life is complete now. I've done it. Brilliant. <laughs> It better be at the top of that reading list. Oh, uh, we'll see. No, I, I'm, I'm not sort of expecting it to be on a list. I just want it to be on the shelf so that it can sit there next to, you know, the getting of wisdom and picnic at Hanging Rock and books like that. So just to, you know, give girls there a little bit of different, different story to read. Yeah, I really love that. That's so good because you're absolutely right. We keep reading these same books over and over again and everyone's read them. We all know them. They're boring. Like, <laughs> I mean, I loved them when I read them, but I kind of think, you know, we, we should have moved on after three decades. And also, um, I guess because the school is is quite predominantly migrant, to sort of give these kids, some of them who don't have English as a first language, you know, these books, they're incomprehensible to them. You know, the English, yeah. like as, as my daughter calls it, um, is the olden days English. So, you know, these kids are going to have trouble getting into them in the first place. So I just wanted to give them a bridge to that kind of literature that just wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sort of 
the language side of things is obviously an important part of the story as well um, and the focus on that sort of migrant experience of coming to a country and learning the language as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, I've been thinking about these issues for a very long time because I came to Australia as a um, toddler. So I think I probably didn't um, learn how to speak English until I got to Melbourne and we were watching things like Countdown, which is a show that is so old, you won't have heard of it, but it was like a music program. Oh, my God, no, Meldrum. Do yourself a favour. Yeah, exactly. That's how I learned English. So um, shows like that are Mr Squiggle and just bizarre things, Humphrey BB, you know, A Bear That Doesn't Talk. So those kinds of shows were the shows that I was learning English from. And I was just sort of thinking, you know, if you've got recent migrants to the country, and I've tried to contrast Wern and Henry's story because Wern's a bit more fluent in the language than Henry is, um, just trying to show people that the more fluent you become in the sort of, you know, local idiom, the easier it is to actually move through life. And so that's why I've got these two characters who are both migrants, but they're at different stages of that journey and just contrasting their experiences. And I think that English is a language that we do rely so much on those local and I'm, I'm sure I mean I don't know any other languages so I can't I can only speak to English yeah I know I don't know any other languages there's nothing I mean, wrong with that there's nothing wrong with I, that I mean I feel like it is in living like living in the UK I feel like everyone here knows at least like some of another language like probably French or something um and you know European countries are a brilliant example of just being fluent in multiple languages is just expected but yeah every language I guess not just English has its own local dialect local words and I think like you know right right off the bat in the book you bring that up where um where she says you know you're just not cutting it and he's like cutting what what am I cutting (laughs) like it's that sort of stuff that it doesn't make sense when you break it down and when you're trying to learn English you know and I'm sure you know if we were trying to learn French or German or Mandarin from a book like it would be that sort of where is the shop yeah, very formal. Yeah, formal yeah. language. That's the thing. So you've yeah. got to like be fluent in the formal language before you can start understanding things like, you know, sport, mate, cobber, you know, you're not cutting it, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was just trying to show, I guess, um, middle grade readers that, you know, sometimes the quiet kid in the corner who just studies or is a nerd and people just ignore them, they're struggling with a lot more than just being a student at school. They've got all these extra layers of things that they have to overcome before they can even start, you know, interacting with everyone else in the class so it's just to put people into other people's shoes that's well speaking for michelle and myself that's why we love reading to read other people's stories because it's such a beautiful story and i love when and henry's friendship they're very cute thank you i wanted to have a friendship actually because um i think at that cusp between middle grade and and ya you don't have to have that trope in there where you know there's a potential love interest or whatever happening with this story it was purely they are friends there's nothing more to it and they're just a support for each other which is really refreshing actually because in a lot of my ya novels you know you've got to have that tension with the love triangle or the whatever um but with this one i didn't feel the pressure to do that which was great which is like you say quite refreshing and really nice and yeah, it just doesn't need to be done in a middle grade novel as well. So yeah, I think that's really, really lovely. Um, so obviously, we've sort of talked about already that this novel seems to be a lot more personal. I know you've said that this is a novel that's more personal than most of the other books that you've written. Was that, you know, did that make it difficult to write? And, you know, was it just the fact that you were writing it for, you know, girls like your daughter to see in schools that made it so personal? There were lots of um, really personal aspects to it. So um, one, probably it was like a personal thing to tell my daughters why their mother is so crazy. Like where, where did she come from and why is she the way she is? So I think they've got, <laughs> you know, way too much background on the way I was raised potentially now than, you know, they knew before. But I mean, it's not autobiographical. It, it sort of mixes together lots of influences from different people's stories and um, obviously like a lot of a lot of the I guess cultural sub dialects that I, I deal in like I, I understand three dialects really well but I, I understand a fourth one really badly and that's the one I've married into I was trying to sort of take all the influences from all those kinds of you know um, I guess subgroups of like Chinese migrant and trying to be true to each of their experiences so for me like I came from like a tiger parenting family which was Singaporean but I've married into a super superstitious um, mainland Chinese family so trying to deal with you know all those various things from different cultures and you'll see that I talk about different dialects in there like Shanghainese and Mandarin and Cantonese trying to get that flavor of 
you know, not all Chinese people are the same and trying to also turn that stereotype of, you know, tiger parenting on its head. And, you know, I called it tiger daughter because I wanted to reclaim that space for the child that comes through that kind of situation. Um, so, yeah, lots and lots of different sort of personal aspects to it. And unfortunately, like the tragic incident at the centre of Henry's story, um, I know of stories like that in real life. And you've got to be really careful when you, um, you know, talk about things like that because you are skating close to, you know, the truth of some people and, you know, a lot of pain that hasn't gone away. So I just wanted to kind of talk about how especially the migrant female experience can be quite difficult because they've got, I guess, patriarchy and sexism and coercive control happening in the home, but then they've also got all those other influences from the, the outside sphere as well. So, yeah, it, it is quite personal and, yeah, I've just had to be really careful, I guess, to not hurt people's feelings. Is that something that, I hope you don't mind me asking, is that something that, like, maybe your family, like have your parents read the novel or anyone else in your family uh, they, uh, they've seen, they've, they've sort of seen me pop up on like, you know, ABC News and they've said, what's that about? And I think um, my husband's actually said, this one you've got to be quite careful about because I don't want you to hand this to my parents. And I, you know, I don't think it's wise for you to hand this to your parents either because, you know, they may not have a nuanced look at it and they may see it as a criticism of the way we were raised. So I actually haven't shown them the novel yet and they may wander out and get a copy. I doubt it. I hope they don't. Um, But there's a lot in there because I'm sort of taking apart, you know, 2,500 years of Confucian philosophy and that's kind of the bedrock um, for a lot of, you know, really Confucian families about how to raise your children and how to be a good person, you know, how to be excellent at school, all that kind of stuff. Things that we kind of haven't really, I guess, questioned for a really, really long time. I've actually said, you know what, I'm going to go back to the source material and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to see how it actually treats women and children because the way we raise our daughters is really different from the way we raise our sons in this culture. And yeah, it's kind of stuffed. And so I'm probably going to be dragged off by, you know, Chinese spies in a van at some point because I have sort of criticised it. But yeah, it sort of needed looking at, I think, after a really long time. But it's something obviously you hope that, you know, your daughters read and like you said, understand more about you and take on those messages themselves. Yeah, and also feel grateful that I don't, you know, to make them go to Chinese cram school. So, yeah, I think, like, I use it as a thing to beat my kids with. It's like, look, you've got a really, really relaxed upbringing, so you should be super grateful for that. So, yeah, I, I really, I'm really like the worst tiger mother in the entire universe. So, um, you know, my kids are so, they're, they're quite over the process because one of them drew the pictures for Wen in the book and one of them drew the pictures for Henry. And so they've been with oh, me. So it's really lovely. Like, they've been with the story for a very long time so in the beginning they were like oh we know who you're talking about there or oh we remember that but um now it's like oh whatever you know let's move on to a Patrick Ness novel or something else more exciting because they've <laughs> you know they've done that you know and kids these days as well I mean you you guys are kids you know I'm so old now but like with my children they're like oh yeah whatever I'll just illustrate some pictures for a book like if I was a kid in the 70s going someone's asked me to draw pictures for an actual real life book I'd be like oh my god oh my god but my kids are like whatever's it's in the library yeah move on so yeah whatever you know like I'm gonna go do something more exciting like learn a TikTok dance or something but you know for them they've, they've sat with it for quite a while now and so they're they're kind yeah. of like yeah we understand why mom's crazy I mean I guess Aww. it's that thing that I feel like everyone feels like they get this from their parents that like you have it easier than I had it and <laughs> yeah. you know they're all over the place things like these like sort of older traditions and customs and everything are getting looked at like all over so yeah it's an interesting discussion to have but um I also don't think you're the first person to hide a book that they've published from their parents <laughs> I think most people who we talk to like they maybe you know if there's sex scenes and things in the book they're more like oh I don't want my kids yeah, to read yeah. this. or my mom oh, oh my god my mom can't see that you know what will she think of me but I mean I think with this one because I am sort of taking apart that that idea that if you push your children this hard, they'll either completely fall apart or they'll become something, you know, almost hardened like a diamond. It'll change them and possibly make them stronger. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. And I think, um, you know, with with a lot of Chinese families, you don't talk about things like mental health. You don't talk about suicide. You don't talk about disability. All these things are kind of like, you know, that's private. We don't really go into those things. So that might be horrifying for my parents as well to actually go, look, there's people in here with a mental illness or there's people in here with suicidal thoughts and that happens you know we can actually talk about it without the sky falling in well I mean yeah what a week to be talking about that as well with the the Megan and Harry interview 
it shows that like even among you would think quite liberal thinking people it still seems quite hard to have those conversations so yeah, I can't even imagine if that's the the culture where it is secret and you do hide things away even more it must be so difficult then to to even try and have those conversations so yeah it definitely sounds like a, the right idea not to let them read that <laughs> that's true like with Henry's story I think like I wanted to I just wanted to tell kids I mean not in a brutal hopefully not too brutal way but I just wanted to say look at your mum look at your dad and look at the kinds of you know things that have probably the choices and the decisions that have gone into why they are the way they are why your home life is the way it is and also to take hope from the situation that even if it's really awful right now and it doesn't make any sense you know the older you get the more fluent you get in all the institutions and the language um life will hopefully change and get better and you should never sort of you know give in to the despair that henry's mother gives into you you shouldn't feel like you're always going to be trapped i mean it's these things i mean as i've just been saying that still kind of a little bit difficult to talk about um, openly, you know, in main society and everything. But, you know, that these kinds of things have to be in children's fiction because children are experiencing them. Exactly. They're living through it. Because you think that, like, that kind of stuff doesn't happen at anyone else's house. Well, you know, like in a lot of kids' fiction, the worst thing that ever happens is, you know, maybe there's one issue, like maybe your dad leaves home or your dad's gay or, you know, like it's sort of like not very multi-layered. But I think for a lot of kids, especially in refugee and migrant families, and I saw this during COVID because a lot of the advertising around domestic abuse was in languages other than English. Um, I think, you know, people are starting to realise that if you're in that kind of really unnetworked, unsupported kind of environment, um, you know, the kids are in danger and they're living through this stuff. And if you don't sort of reflect that in stories, it sort of makes them feel like they're invisible and no one cares and there's really no hope and there's nothing to aspire to. So, yeah, it was kind of, it's trying to work on a lot of levels, I think, this novel. You know, it probably won't sort of, like a, some of the Confucian stuff, like middle grade readers will go whatevers and just move over it and, and not really understand that, you know, some of this is sort of setting the scene for one's home life. But I'm just trying to sort of put in as much, you know, sort of, um, I guess, wisdom or external kind of support you know, from an adult who kind of understands what some kids are going through um, into the story. So as you sort of hinted out there, part of what is explored is that tension between home life and public life at school. And obviously we've said expectations of parents to achieve or be certain things. Um, so why did you want to explore that in, in this book specifically for younger audiences? Like I know we've said they're going through it, but, you know, some people might think, oh, it's probably too early to sort of talk about those things. So why particularly middle grade? I think it's really important um, to talk about breaking out of boxes that people potentially put you in, even from an early age, because, you know, it's a whole discussion at the moment about, you know, well, girls can't do maths, like we can't get girls to do STEM subject. And it's like, well, why can't we? Because we're telling them when they're eight years old that they're crap at maths and they should just forget about that and do something else. And what I'm trying to tell kids is, you know, never pigeonhole yourself early because, you know, you're going to shine at something. You just have to keep working away till you find out, you know, what it is. So I think it's it's never too early to talk about really, you know, really painful or deep subjects with children because they're really wise and they're really resilient. And, you know, they're trying to work it out for themselves and put it into language anyway. We might as well sort of help them along the path. So for me, for example, like when I was growing up, there were no stories like these ever. So for me, it was a really personal thing because I was writing to, to the child that I was at the same age who was looking for a story like this to make sense of, you know, why do I live like this and why don't we speak English at home and, you know, why do we eat these foods and do these things, and, you know, go to Chinatown all the time. Um, I think if I'd had something like that, it would have helped me understand my position a bit better when I was younger. So I think, yeah, I'm just kind of writing to that gap that, you know, was there and it's still there for some kids. Yeah. How do you feel now having having done that and having, you know, being able to hold that book? Like, is there a sense of pride that you and have? put it in the library at your kids' school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually seen it on the shelf. They might have they might have got the copy and just gone, oh, whatever, and just thrown it away. But um, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm just I'm just really happy that I guess there's an alternative for um, my kids and their friends. Like, you know, even if they're over it and they don't want to read it anymore, at least, you know, if one of their friends maybe wants a story about this, at least it sort of plugged that tiny little hole that was that was there. So yeah, I don't I don't know if I feel pride. I think I feel a bit of fear actually I'm just sort of afraid that 
um, you know, people will take it as a, as a criticism of some parts of our culture. And it's not. It's like how, you know, even with the Me Too movement and everything at the moment, we're just reassessing how to do things better. And, like, if we don't sort of talk about the ways in which we keep our women and children down, we will continue to do that. So I think, you know, the more we air these things and the more we kind of say, well, why do we do it like this? You know, is there a reason we do it like this? And why do we make people feel this way? If we start talking about that earlier, maybe we can change it. Just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean we have to keep doing it that way. Or it's the right way. You know, that's the thing. Like I'm always questioning, is this the best way we can do something? And and I think, you know, if you take the analects of Confucius as the right way to do something, then, you know, it's not a religious text, so I can quite wholeheartedly say it is really flawed and you shouldn't be using that as the basis on which you build a family, let alone a government. I think it's been really interesting this week um, because this will come out later, but we're, we're recording it in the week of the, the Meghan and Harry interview. And that's been, like for me, a lot of the, there's been a lot of talk about what the palace will and won't do here in England and I just keep thinking, but, like, why can't you change that? Mm. Like, you are the palace. You surely have the power to change Change that. your narrative, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. when they say things like, oh, but, you know, Prince William, for example, won't give an interview or Charles won't give an interview on this because it's not the done thing. It's like, well, change the damn narrative then. Mm. Like, someone change it. Like, that. that's why people are speaking out. It's time to change things and, like, if you, the queen, cannot change them. Yeah, the woman with all this power. That's the thing. If you have all the power and all the money and you still can't change it, it's ridiculous. I know. What hope do we have? It is interesting that we're, like, talking about all these things this week and it is, like, holding these institutions to power and, like, sort of looking at them. And like you said, like, not necessarily saying that we have all the answers and that this is how we should do things better, but saying this, like, the place to start is this is not good enough. Yeah, and we should consider it in more detail. Yeah, absolutely, and talk about and air it. That's the thing because everyone's like, oh, my God, she said too much, you know, there's no way back. But it's like people have been thinking this stuff for years and years. I mean, look at Wallace Simpson. That was like almost 100 years ago, right? They've had these issues before, but they've just kind of like brushed them over and and that's kind of led to this kind of crisis because nobody's ever sort of said, why can't I marry a divorcee? Why can't I marry, you know, a person of colour? Like why is it an issue? And, And that's why it's so explosive now because it's like finally someone's talking about it and they should have done it almost a century ago it's just absolutely nuts and we're obviously not going to go down that like that's a whole other discussion but I do think <laughs> that's a whole different podcast it <laughs> yeah. but, it, but the same way that in this book you're not saying I have all the answers and this is the way we should do things better it's just saying let's look at what we just believed unquestionably mm. and you know is is this actually the right way to do things or is there a better way mm. and I think people get too caught up when they when they want to criticize things as we've seen a lot this week <laughs> they get too caught up and well well what would we do instead it's like well I don't know but that doesn't mean we can't ask the question yeah and it's a conversation that's the thing like you know I'm sort of adding to a global conversation that I think a lot of women are having in lots of cultures about well why do I do things this way like why is it that I have to do it like this and I think that the genius thing that Meghan Markle and Harry have done which I haven't done is they've basically turned those two institutions on each other like they've, they've kind of set them off yeah. you know like it's like this Game of Thrones thing which I don't think I've done with mine thank goodness because otherwise I really would be hauled away in a van but um, I think you know with them at least they've kind of used their position and their power to actually go you know I'm going to set a little fire under this and see what happens which you know my tiny middle grade novel will probably not do. But I think what's important too about you know you doing this novel is that people who grow up in Australia who have no experience of any migrant families, hopefully people like Caitlin and I, like kids like Caitlin and I who grew up in regional Queensland and didn't really see many migrant families in the same way that, you know, kids in Melbourne might, it also gives us a greater understanding of what people are going through. Like you said, that shy kid in the class is not he's going through a lot more and again as we always like come back to on this podcast hopefully makes more empathetic people in the future Mm. you know because they're reading these sorts of books as children and that's 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 obviously a long a long goal in the future but (laughs) it's it's obviously like it's, it's more than just you know it's more than just a book really when you when you look it up yeah I mean I think for me um 
it, it's kind of like I had a discussion with um, uh, another person on the radio a couple of weeks ago and he was saying how he went to a selective school but because he is Caucasian, the experience that he had was quite different and he basically said, oh, yeah, all the Asians just hung out together and we just hung out together with our own group. And I said, those Asians in the corner that you didn't kind of mix with, they're just like you. They're trying to get through selective school. They're trying to compete with everyone else and they're people just like you are. And I think for him he suddenly went, oh, yeah, you know, we probably should have gotten to know each other better. But it's that whole aha moment of, you know, like telling a child not everybody's the same as you and not everyone has the same advantages or disadvantages as you and are just trying to open their eyes up to like, yeah, greater empathy, greater understanding and just sort of, you know, not like trying to leave your privilege at the door, I guess, you know, like just don't assume that everybody has the same experiences or conditions of life that you have because they probably won't. Yeah. And when you are a kid, it's hard to, it's hard to know that unless you're, you're being told that. Um, actually, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was You're Wrong About, and they were having this conversation. They sort of said, like, it sounds so obvious when you say it, but they were like, when you are a child, that is the oldest you have ever been. And you think, <laughs> we, we always think too, we look at kids and think, oh, they're so innocent. Like, oh, they, they, they don't know all these troubles that are going on. But when you are a child, you sometimes take those things and you're worrying about them because you think it's your responsibility to do certain things, even though we look and say, oh, they're only nine, they're only 10, whatever. And we think, oh, that's mm. so young. For them, that is the oldest they've ever been. And they think like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is something I have to deal with. Yeah. And they were talking about it in relation to, they were talking about it in relation to sexual abuse as well and not telling because they didn't want to burden their parents with that and stuff. And it's, it's like that idea of like, oh, I must keep this a secret or whatever because, you know, we just make assumptions from that adult perspective forgetting that we were once in that position. Yeah. And I just thought, like, when they said it, I was like, oh, my God, yeah, wow, yeah. <laughs> and I think true. with like, a lot of kids as well, like kids are the centre of their own universe. You know, that's the thing. Like I think yeah. it, it takes age and time on this planet to actually realise, hang on, I am not the pinnacle of human achievement. Like there is other stuff out there, except in the case of Greta Thunberg. Like I think she actually is yeah. probably, you know, like she she, she sort of so left all that behind really quickly. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Yeah. That's the most children, I think, um, it takes a little bit to shake that tree and go, actually, you know, you're the centre of your own little universe, but there are all these other universes nudging up against yours. And, you know, it's actually good for you to try and understand things from the perspective of that person's universe or that person's universe. I actually joke sometimes there was, there must have been something sort of recently that was like, oh, remember this, like, I don't know, really big news story or whatever from like, X number of years ago and I was like oh when was that and everything and I figured it out and I was like no that happened the year I was in year 12 and I have no idea what happened in the world <laughs> that year because yeah, I was like, just so in my own space I was just in year 12 my friends were my entire world I don't even know what my family was doing that year I was like <laughs> so focused on myself so funny but now with a bit more time I'm like yeah I have no idea what happened in the in the world in that year I was yeah um, I, I completely agree with that because I think I'm um, in year 12 like the Berlin Wall came down I think possibly that's how old oh I am I know, oh my god you guys weren't even born but oh no I meant, <laughs> I meant the historic event I wasn't meaning that <laughs> but that's the thing like you know it was no no seriously I'm ancient but um like that's the thing it was such like year 12 was so intense and because you know I had the whole tiger parent thing you know do medicine do medicine in the background which I didn't do quite deliberately <laughs> um you know that whole thing about hey the whole world is changing out there you know there's like whole like, like, structures care. falling over you I'm like oh, whatever I've just got to pass you know chemistry because it's really hard so the, I mean it's interesting how you talk about you know the the juxtaposition between the massive events in someone's life who's young and the massive events that are happening around them because it's like yeah vaguely aware Bill Clinton's in town but doesn't really have a patch on you know me meeting up with my friends at this thing so yeah um, so Rebecca, we would also love to talk a bit about your writing journey in general. As you said, you've what published twenty books or more. Some of them were very short, so I think that sounds more impressive than it actually is. But I'm I'm lucky because I get to write for like lots of different age groups, so three plus up to you know like young adult or adult. So yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I think that very very impressive. But we believe that you worked as a lawyer until you became a writer, so. What was that journey? Why the switch to writing? How did you get your first publishing deal? 
Okay, all that stuff. Um, I've actually gone back to the law. So like I, I kind of have this manic brain sometimes where I have to do technical writing on one day or, you know, legal writing on another day and then try and be creative the day after. Um, but I think early on, um, I was absolutely exhausted um, working at this really massive law firm that basically treated us like human fodder. So, you know, they'd often be almost towing my car off the street because we'd just slept there all night or we'd just been in boardrooms all night and I couldn't get anything published. So I actually took a year or two off. Like I just said to my husband, we've saved up enough. I'm just going to do some writing. And I actually ended up leaving the law for about 13 years. But I was lucky during that sort of time off where it was like make or break. And there were years where like I earned $500. I mean, you can't even feed a family on that. But um, I, I actually managed to get some kids' books published and, you know, sort of moved up the age grade and then sort of moved down the age grade again. But, yeah, I think um, the good thing about being a lawyer is you kind of get to the point, regardless of what the topic is, you get to the point really quickly and also um, you see how sentences are constructed and it's easy to work to a deadline. So for me, it's been quite beneficial. Um, hopefully my children's books don't read like legal advices because they're quite <laughs> dreadful. They're like 36 <laughs> no. pages of stuff with three annexures on the back and they're just terrible. But I think um, it's a good discipline to have because like being able to flip between audiences or flip between writing styles is, is really great. I mean, we could name like 100 people who are like journalists and then become authors and they talk about, you know, writing to deadlines and just writing all the time, no matter if it's good or not. But I guess you don't think about that that often in relation to other professions. But if you're writing reports and big long letters and everything like that, I don't know what a lawyer does. But, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> you don't want to know. It's so boring. Um, I, think, I, I think it definitely it would be more boring than we imagine. It's, it's never as exciting as in the movie. It's never, ever exciting. So I don't think I could even describe to you, like, I, you know, those big glossy sort of, um, you know, offer documents that sometimes come in the mail for your mum and dad that offer shares in a company and the really tiny writing up the back. Like, that's how I started off, you know, being a lawyer, I'd write the tiny words at the back and make sure that they were all there in nine-point font. Um, but yeah, that kind of that kind of stuff has just moved on to different things. But yeah, I think it, it's just being—it's good actually to be able to treat adults like children and write something which is really complicated in really sort of simple to understand words, and then be able to flip—you know—that idea around for kids' books, writing something in simple words but encompassing really complex ideals, you know, like in there. So, yeah, it's good. It, it's kind of complementary, more complementary than being a GP, for example, I think, and, and being a writer. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure there's lots of doctors who are writers as well. So, but um, yeah, I've just found it's really useful to be able to, yeah, just take really complex or dark ideas and just smush them into easier words for people to understand and that's a skill that I take across everything so that you know I don't think my law firm clients would you know particularly want to hear that but yeah just taking complex stuff and making it understandable is like my job all the time you know my kids will always say you know what superpower do you wish you had or whatever and I'll always say it's definitely not maths just like when it's just not maths but I think being able to like you know just understand stuff and that's kind of why I did law instead of medicine which is what my parents were like you know trying to force me to do like up till the second that you could change your preferences they were like you have to do it and I was like no way am I doing it so I think for me it's like you know that whole trying to understand power structures and understand how things are communicated and you know just being able to navigate your way through this absolutely complicated world that we live in um, that's a really huge thing for me so I completely agree that you know we kind of take it for granted that we can do it but it's it's not something that everyone can do and we're really lucky you know to be able to do that to tap into that kind of you know like I call sort of mini superpower really. Um, so as we said you have written a lot of books, had, you know, multiple award nominations, um, especially for your young adult novels. How have you changed and grown as a writer during that time? I think I've become sort of deeply more realistic about things because, you know, like a lot of kids, when I go and speak to them at school, they'll go, I bet you fly around everywhere and sign autographs. And I'm like, no, no, I jumped in my Toyota four-wheel drive, which is 15 years old, to drive down the freeway to your school. And so for me, I've become a lot more realistic because in the beginning I think like publishers would be like you're the next big thing and the next big thing and I'm like yeah yeah I'm the next big thing my thing's gonna like appear on bed sheets or something right they'll go your character's gonna be so huge and then nothing happens and so like I think for me like I've just become more and more realistic about this whole thing and you know I'm not going to be Stephen King but if like you know my husband was saying the other day if I touch one kid who goes yeah I really get something out of this story and it reflects my story and I kind of feel a bit seen today um, that's kind of like the best you can hope for really so I think I've 
just become deeply realistic, not bitter, hopefully, but deeply realistic about writing. Publishing is so like unknown. I think until you're in it in some way, know the process is, how like it's not as glamorous as it seems. It's like, it's a, such a weird one. I guess to end, um, we want to ask you about the Voices from the Intersection initiative. So can you tell us a bit about how you got involved in that project um, and then some of the work that you're doing with that? You were the co-editor of the Intersection, weren't you? Yep. Um, With with that, uh, people sort of grandly call it an organisation, but it's really just me and Amberlynn Kwaimalana, who's a First Nations author, and she lives in um, Western Australia. So we just swap emails from our studies and um, we kind of try and run things for literally no money. Um, So the pitch day that we ran in 2017, like I lent on um, Adele Walsh at the State Library to give me some space and then I bought the Freddo (laughs) frogs and the snakes for the day and, you know, I got all all my publishing mates to come along and, like, just speak to emerging authors and a lot of them were really really shy like you know to the point where they were hyperventilating before they came in and saying to each other should I even go oh my god I can't talk to anyone but what what we tried to do with that um, basically for free was to get people to see you know publishers from um, Penguin, Hachette, um, HarperCollins down to you know tiny like picture book um, publishers like Burbay Publishing and um, you know smaller places like um, uh, Midnight Sun and, and people like that and just sort of get a gamut of you know what a big publisher publisher's representative would look like, what a small publisher's representative would look like, and to get email addresses from people, because often with the publishing industry, it's just opaque. You don't know who to write to. You never hear back ever again. It's just this void. Um, So for a lot of these authors who are disabled or, you know, um, First Nations or um, a combination of these things, and that's where we get that idea of intersections from, because a lot of people aren't just one thing. You know, they might be LGBT as well as First Nations, or they might be disabled as well as queer. So, um, what we were trying to do was just to make people feel comfortable enough to tell their stories. And so I don't think we've had, you know, any published content come out of those days, but we've got people still talking to, you know, publishers from ANU like three years later and sort of keeping in contact and having ideas bubbling away under the surface. And so out of that, again, this was like a freebie. We basically thought, okay, we've got no money to do anything, so let's pull together an anthology of mostly emerging writer stories. And some of the people came from that pitch day. Um, There was a blind girl who, you know, never had anything published before and her story was amazing because it was so full of rage. And you never get stories from, you know, disabled people saying, I actually feel angry about the so-called normal world because you never give us, you know, any agency. You don't treat us like full human beings. So just to have perspectives like that was really vital. And to get the thing published, we had to anchor it with, you know, famous people like Alice Pong and um, you know published authors as well so we had a good mix but it was mostly emerging and what we were trying to show people was that whole intersectional thing where and I, I talk about this in Tiger Daughter as well where you are not just discriminated against because you're female or because you're gay but you've also got some other you know systemic bias or something coming in over the top because you're also First Nations or you're also a person of colour um, so a lot of the stories were intersectional and we tried to set it up so that if kids wanted to delve into a story that was kind of similar to theirs they could do that by looking at the you know summary of the story and saying okay well that person's First Nations looking for a job that's like me but we also set it up so that if you wanted to get a completely opposite perspective from someone you would never ever see in real life you could also do that too so you know I will never be uh, for example like an LGBT woman um, who's married you know the partner of my dreams but I can read a story about that if I want to read about a story um, like that so um And again, because it was like all done on, you know, a sniff of gasoline, um, we were lucky enough to have Fremantle Press actually say we're not for profit. We don't have any qualms like a lot of the big publishers do about where to put this on the bookshelf because a lot of big publishers who came to the pitch day said we like the idea for your anthology but we can't market it. We just don't know where to put it. We don't know if anyone's going to buy it. There's no audience. And like that's, you know, we were saying that's rubbish. The audience is the people who are writing these stories. Yeah, because like they they want to read about themselves, and you're not talking to them. So um, that I think I mean for us that was like a flat fee thing. I think every person at least got paid something to do that, but it's not like we ever see royalties from it ever again. So that's just out there in the world saying, you know how you said there wasn't a market for these stories. There is absolutely a market for these stories. Yeah, and so I think um because COVID kind of derailed everything. 
Camberlin and I were talking about maybe putting together a mentorship for emerging um, picture book authors and um, middle grading young adult authors with Alan and Unwin. So I think this year is probably um, not the year we're still going to do it because it's it's still like I think for Amberlin's community, um, you know, the health crisis and every other crisis they're facing is just, you know, really overwhelming. So we're going to try and do that with Alan and Unwin next year, I think. So we'll try and put up, I think, four mentorships where people get to work with me and Amberlin. And then once we've crafted whatever they've come in with, we'll put it in front of ANU and say, this is as good as it gets. Do you want to publish it? So that's kind of what we're aiming for next. It can be so, so powerful. And it's that it's that gatekeeping, isn't it, of mm. not being able to get your first draft through the door of the publisher because you don't know how to change it or you don't have those mentors. So for you to be able to work with people and get them with your experience in publishing up to this standard that gets the publishers to finally pay attention. So for us, like because all we have is time, we've got no money, um, you know, the, the only way we can really help emerging authors is just to say we will sit with your work for six weeks, get it as good as it can get, and then we'll put it in front of the publishers that we work with ourselves at Allen and Unwin and see if they'll take it. There seems to be this um, sort of growing understanding of how helpful anthologies can be um, for emerging authors, I mean, Black Ink Book has, sorry, Black Ink Books have had those amazing anthologies. You know, growing up disabled in Australia, like all those anthologies, we're starting to see a bit more of that. And I think it is a good a good way to get space on the bookshelf and show that actually these things do sell and these things do mean a lot to those people as well. I mean, the beauty about anthologies, I think, is it gives a lot of people, um, you know, something to put on their CV. So it's really hard. Like, it's a catch-22 with publishing. You don't get published unless you're published, right? It's really hard to get that first thing off the ground. And I think with an anthology, you can actually say, I've given 26 people a start. And, you know, it may or may not lead to other things. But at least they can say on their CV, in this year, I wrote this, you know, memoir piece. And that was how I got started. So I think it's a really useful thing. And it's also useful, an anthology like for example the growing up disabled one or the growing up um you know aboriginal in australia it's to show um people who are you know so-called mainstream readers not every aboriginal person is the same you know not every disabled person is the same not every asian person is the same and to give people that multiplicity of voices because i think a lot of people just go oh that's just you know they're just asians right like that like that guy who interviewed me the other day it was just oh well they were just the asian students but it's like every one of those asian students had their own story and they came from a different cultural background and you know you just treat them as a block and i think you know for example with um the disabled writer in our anthology she was just furious like she just thought you know how dare you treat us as you know these people who need your help and these people who need pity it's like we're all different we all have different needs well hopefully you have some good news about that next year and you Mm -hmm. can work with some authors next year as well looking forward to it actually to wrap up it'd be great if you uh just let our audience know where they can find you and follow you online okay um i am a little bit terrified of social media i don't know about you guys but um i don't have twitter do you have twitter do you find that terrifying not no. anymore. I mean, I have it, but I never use it. You don't it. really it use it? Angry. No. Really? Yeah. I mean, you can kind of go into all these rabbit holes, I think, if you have something like that, and you sort of end up spending, you know, three hours shouting at your screen when you could have been doing something yeah. else. So, yeah. It's, just, um, it's productive. <laughs> no. And it kind of makes you feel worse about yourself for some reason. But I am on Instagram, so Rebecca Lim um, underscore writer, if you want to send me pretty pictures, because I like those. Um, I'm on Facebook, but Facebook, as we know, has become a bit of an evil empire, so not sort of lurking around there much anymore. Um, and I don't really have my own website. I think um, I am one of those traditional writers who is quite terrified by um, public speaking and seeing people and actually having to interact with human beings. So um, some days it's easy and some days it's not easy. So I think the best place to find me is probably Instagram, I think. Tiger Daughter is out now in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I think probably in London around June, possibly this year. Wonderful. Yeah, that would be excellent. So lovely to see. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank, thank you, you both. <laughs> <laughs> I love tangents. Tangents are great.